Just that power. Yeah. Power is important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so I've been told. Um, thanks, brother. Sorry. I did turn it on, but I didn't power it on. So I've told you, common sense is not very common to me. So, but th let's pray. Let's get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our union with Jesus Christ by the Spirit and through Spirit-worked faith. We thank you for your word. It is light and it is life to us. We thank you that your word is a means of grace, a means by which you dwell in our hearts, build us up, transform us from glory to glory and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray that you would continue to renew us in the spirit of our minds, that we might offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing in your sight by virtue of our union with Christ. Teach us this morning by the light of your word. Fill us with your spirit and strengthen us and grow us into those who love you with hearts that have been raised up and renewed in Christ Jesus. Seal Christ and his benefits to us now and teach us by your word and spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I'm a couple of, I'm a little lower this morning. I think I have a mild uh, allergy situation here. I, mean, very, I never had it when I was young, but I guess that's just a sign I'm not that young anymore. Um, I'm certainly happy for that. Um, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, I, I want to talk to you. I'm going to show you the target verse that we're going to look at. So if you turn to Hebrews 10, or pardon me, Hebrews 11, uh, this is a theme we didn't get to cover in, in our conference. It's a theme very important, very, very significant, and it's going to be the call of Abram, or Abraham. His name is changed to the father of many nations in Genesis 17. So if I call him Abram, it's pre-Genesis 17. If I call him Abraham, it's post-Genesis 17. Uh, but we're going to look at verses 8 through 10, and I'm going to put it in the context of Genesis uh, 11, 12, and 13. So turn in your Bibles there to Hebrews 11, 8. We'll read from that to verse 10, and then I'll read uh, verse 16. So Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, and then I'll skip down to verse 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 16, as it is they, Abraham and those with him, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, I want to put this in context, if, and, and this is the big picture that I want you to get. Um, I want you to think back to Genesis 11 and 12, and I want to try to situate the call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees when God called him to bring him to a land that he would show him in, in, Hebrew, in uh, Genesis 12.1. In order to do that, I want to give you background on the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel. Now, I am not known for making great drawings. Uh, that's, that's my mountain. My mountains look like triangles, right? I'm, I'm going to try to get a little bit better at that, but it's probably not going to happen. Um, but I, I want to talk to you about the Tower of Babel. And, and, and as background, I'd like you to have, if you... Uh, have your Bible with you, you can just flip back to Genesis 11. And, and I want to ask you this question. Think with me. What is happening in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? And why is it placed just before the genealogy of Abraham and the call of Abraham? Why, why is that the case? Well, here's what I want you to think about. In, in uh, Genesis 11, the whole earth, 11.1, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, now listen. Let us build ourselves a city. The impulse of Babel is a city-building project. Do you see that right there in Genesis 11? In Genesis 11, uh, 3, uh, 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with its top in the heavens... And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. This is a city-building project in, in 4 and 5, which has as its center what? You've got to get this. The name of man. The name of man. And, the, and I don't draw uh, very well, but what, what this city would look like would be an ancient ziggurat temple structure. And so it would look something like this. It would begin and it would ascend. And if you've, if you've done Hebrews with us, you're going to go, oh my goodness, what is this? This, this ziggurat structure, this temple, that's better than the mountain, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've got, I'm coming, th I'm, I'm, I'm getting upgraded. You're helping me uh, be more sensitive to my drawings here. Um, but in Genesis 11, 4, 5, there is a a, a ziggurat structure, a, 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 a human monument that is um, an attestation 
to the name and glory of man. And, 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 and this, is, this is a symbol, this is going to become a symbol that provides the background for talking about Babylon, the city of man. And, and, and this thing right here, this, this would be, this ziggurat structure, this city um, would be a focus for future fullness and flourishing. It's a symbol of what man is seeking to do as he exalts his name. And in this text, there's no reference to two things. What? There's no reference to a city built by God. And there's no reference to the name of God anywhere. If you want me to give it to you in pretty straightforward spiritual terms, do you know what this is? This is a precursor to the Antichrist project. To the, to the one whose chief ambition is the exaltation of man. Over against recognizing and confessing the name of God, the living and true God. Now, what does the Lord do? Here's what I want you to see. The Lord, who is seated in heaven, right? We're doing our Hebrew stuff now. The Lord's throne is in heaven, and he is sovereign, and you cannot hide anything from him. Nothing. If you go into heaven, he's there. If you descend to the abyss, he is there. If you stay on the earth or in the water, the Lord sees you. So what does he do? He surveys from heaven... And what does he do? If you look there in verse uh, 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. It's, it's particularly verse 6 that it's viewed as a, as a tower, ziggurat structure, extending up into the heavens. And the Lord sees this. He descends. And what does he do? He says, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, what does the Lord do? I want to give you this in basic, basic categories. The Lord sees this temple dwelling, this ziggurat dwelling, this monument being built to the name of man. And he does basically three things. He descends, he judges, I guess this is going to be four. He descends, he judges, he confuses and he scatters. He descends, he judges, he confuses, and he scatters. And so this tower, the Tower of Babel, verse 6, it falls. I want you to think of it that way. I'm not saying the Lord took the brick and mortar and destroyed it, but what does he do? He descends, he judges, he scatters, it confuses, and he scatters. And he stops that building project. And I want you to think of that as, as God making a pile of rubble out of Babel. You see that? Now, I want to ask you this question. Why 
is the Abraham genealogy following immediately after that. What is happening? Well, I want to tell you, as you move into Genesis 12, instead of the Tower of Babel, you're going to have now the kingdom of God in its Abrahamic promise form. And that's going to be focused in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and then we're going to look at 13, 14 through 17. Oh, and we're also going to look at verse 4. What I, what I want you to appreciate is that the genealogy, Shem's descendants, Terah's descendants, is leading you to what person? Abraham. It's a movement from the judgment on Babel to the call of Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, what does the Lord do? Well, look. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, so what's going to become important? Land, verse 1 of, of Genesis 12. Go to the land that I will show you. And now what does the Lord say? I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now what does the Lord do here? Listen, now you're going to hear about the city of God. The Lord descends to Abram. He calls, he gathers, and he blesses. The Lord descends, he calls, he gathers, and he blesses. And he says to Abram, leave this country and go to a land, verse 1, go to a land that I will show you. And what I'm going to do is this. Contrary to the Tower of Babel, what did they want to do in verse 5? They wanted to, to exalt what? Their name. Yeah, the name of man and the building project that attests to his name. And what does God say? God says to Abram, I'm going to make your name great when I do what? When I gather you and the people and I bless you. If we had more time, the blessing in Genesis 12 is a sevenfold blessing. It's kind of like a recapitulation of God's work during the creation week that's going to move toward a climax of Sabbath rest. And, and we don't have time to do that, but that's what's happening. The Lord's saying, in essence, Abram, in continuity with the promises I gave Adam, that I gave Noah, I am now going to bring you and your offspring to myself I will bless you. Think of the ironic benediction. I am going to bless you and keep you and make my face shine upon you. I am going to make your name great as you, what? This is key. As you hear 
and believe my word. Right? That's what's happening. Now that parallels, if you want to make a little note of this, turn over to Hebrews 11.8, and I just want you to see this. This is so fascinating to me. It's just, isn't the Bible wonderful? But look at verse 8. 12.8 is pinpointing and summarizing Genesis 12, 1 through 3. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Now look at that verse. And he went out. Look at Genesis 12, 4. Abram went as the Lord told him. So Genesis 12, 1 through 4, God promises, God calls, Abram goes. He's the man of faith. 12.8 is an interpretation <coughs> of Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Now, what happens after that? What happens after that? After that, Abram follows the Lord, and as he follows the Lord, he moves toward the land that the Lord had promised him, the land of Canaan. And in uh, Genesis 13, um, Abram and Lot began to move into the land that the Lord had promised. And as they enter the land, the Lord says to Abram in verse 14, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. Now, what, what is that? Abram is, is moving in the direction of this land. The Lord is bringing him into this place where Abram's still remaining a pilgrim. And he tells him what? He says, lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look at all of this land. So Abram's to do this. What? I don't know my directions. I don't have a good sense of direction. Look north, south, east, and west. That's the best I can do. In other words, do the panoramic survey of this land. And this land I'm going to give you as an everlasting possession. Now I want you to think about this. There's a, there's a, there's a theory of interpreting the Bible that's called dispensationalism. There are varieties of it, but I want to just talk to you about a kind of classic dispensational view. It's not our view. It's, a, it's not a reformed view, but it's a really popular view around these parts, and um, in, in the United States, it's gained popularity. And here's what they'll tell you. I want you to feel the pressure of this real fast. They want to say, do you believe in an inerrant Bible? Amen, right? We believe. They do, too. These dispensationalists do. If you want a few names, C.I. Schofield, Charles Ryrie, Pentecost, Walvard, those sorts of people, they're your classical dispensationalists. Here's what they say. I want you to feel the pressure of this. They say, you believe in an inerrant Bible, don't you? And we say, of course we do. We're reformed. We believe in that. The Bible requires us to believe in that. And they say, very good. I, I'm glad you do. We do, too. Now they'll say, look, look at the language of Genesis 13. 
you Reformed brothers, because they're brothers with us and sisters in Christ. I say, my Bible tells me that in verse 14 and 15, the land that you look at, the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now, here's what their, here's what their, their interpretation is of that. They, you want to know what they say this requires? It requires this. It requires that the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan, must be an everlasting possession for the biological offspring of Abraham. And if you deny it, you deny the inerrancy of Scripture. Does that make sense? You, you've got to say that whatever else happens, the land of Canaan and it being an everlasting possession for Israel is the central theme of the whole Bible. So when Jesus comes and the Jews reject him and he is crucified and rises, and the church is born. Do you know what classic dispensationalism calls that? Plan B. They call it Plan B. And it's a parenthesis in history where the church becomes, comes into existence. But the Plan A from the beginning has been what? Giving the land of Canaan to the biological offspring of Abraham, namely the Jewish people. So if the church exists, and like Hebrews tells us, has this heavenly inheritance, the church has to be construed, listen, as a separate people with a separate destination, heavenly. Because the destination for Israel, the destination for the Jewish people, is the land of Canaan. And here's why. Here's the way they'll push you if you talk to them, uh, the, especially those who've really put their minds to it. They'll say, I don't know how to interpret the land that you're looking at in any other way. Show me in Genesis 13, 14, and 15 again where it says heaven. Show me in Genesis 13, 14, and 15 again where it says something other than the land is your inheritance, Abraham. And then if, you, if, you, if you're, I grew up around this, and when I became a Christian um, and I was at Southwestern Oklahoma State University, every single person there was a dispensationalist. And I just felt so, so different, right? So I, I read through this, and, and, and I just want you to know when I was about 20, I, you, have to, you have to deal with this, right? So, so you're looking at it and you say, okay, well, what do we do? Well, they say, they say, what you should do is pretty simple. Become a dispensationalist, <laughs> right? And firm an inerrant Bible. Well, here's what I want you to notice. Here's what I want you to notice. Um, in, in, if you'll turn back to, act, uh, to um, Hebrews 11, Here's what I want you to start to appreciate. Hebrews 11 tells you, look now, in verse 8, that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. 
That's 12, 1 through 4, right? Hebrews 13, 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Now what is that? That is 13, 1 through 13. Abram enters into the land and God tells him to do what to it? He's entered into the land. God tells him to look all around and he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now the question is, what does verse 10 say? Now I want you to note this, and this is very interesting. This is very important to look at. In, in Genesis 13, 14, and 15, to your offspring I will give this land as an everlasting possession. And what's the key verb? Abram, I want you to do what? I want you to look. Look at it. Stare at it. East, west, north, south, look at it, stare at it. Author of Hebrews, my thesis, our thesis is this, that Hebrews 11.10 is an inerrant, inspired, spirit-given interpretation of that to which Abram looked. And let's look at it. Let's see what our, let's see what our whole Bible says about this. Verse 10. For he, Abram, was looking. Just stop. He was looking. What is he doing? He is pinpointing 13, Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15, isn't he? God says to Abram, look. The author of Hebrews says, Abram obeyed God and looked. Now, here's the question. To what was he looking? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, verse 16, and they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now let's put this up on the board for a second. In Genesis 13, 14 through 16, we're going to call this the land of Canaan. And here is Abraham looking. Now I want to be as explicit as I can be. What was Abraham looking at in 13, 14, and 15? He was looking at the actual historical real land of Canaan. Is that disputable? Nope. It's not disputable. When he shielded his eyes, he was looking at that land. So we'll say in Genesis 13, 14 through 16, Abraham was looking at the land. I'm using that for, for emphasis. He was looking at it. 
Now, what does the author of Hebrews tell us that in, in 11, uh, 10, what does the author of Hebrews tell us the land facilitated? He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for what? A heavenly city or a heavenly land whose builder and maker is God. Verse 10, verse 16. And if you look down in, um, in, in, into, into verse uh, 17, and if you look back up to verses 13 through 15, what do you get? Here's what you get. These, Abraham and the patriarchs, not having received the promised inheritance, but having seen and greeted it from afar, having acknowledged that they were what? Look, strangers and exiles on earth. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city. A heavenly country, a heavenly land, a heavenly city. That is what Abram was looking to. So now, how do we understand this? What is being said here? Well, here's what I want you to think about with me. And this is going to be helpful. If you can plug this in, if you're at the conference, this is just going to be obvious. If you aren't at the conference, it's going to be obvious because it's, it's, it's clear. The land of Canaan at which Abram looked is in its very essence a type of the coming heavenly country, of the coming heavenly city. And as long as Abram was looking at that land, he was an alien and a stranger on earth. And he was looking to a city to come. If you want to add one text that will help amplify this, turn to Hebrews 13, 14. Hebrews 13, 14. <clears throat> Here on earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now let's start to think about this in terms of the context of Genesis. What is God doing with Abraham? Here's what he's doing. Immediately after and out of the rubble of Babel, a building project that God sees, he descends, he judges, and he scatters. Immediately out of that, he calls Abram as the father 
of a new humanity. And that means that what you have happening in the transition from Genesis 11 into Genesis 12, uh, uh, 12, 1 through 3, and then 13, 14 through 16, is this. God is saying to Abram that I will destroy the city of man and in its place I will build a city. In its place I will build a people. And I will do this with Abram whom I've called out of Ur of the Chaldees and called him to a land that I will show him. And, and so the transition from 11 to 12, I, I want to see if you can see this. Uh, if we had more time, we could make it clearer. But what is that? What is Genesis 11 and 12, if you think about it? It's not the end of the world, but it's the way the world ends, isn't it? What happens? Think of it this way. I want you to think of it this way. God says about the Tower of Babel, about a city-building project that has the name of its man as its integrative locus, God says to that, no. He says no. And after that judgment, what rises as an edifice in the place of Babel? A land that is itself orienting toward a heavenly polis, a heavenly dwelling place. And Abraham and his offspring have that city, have that homeland. So, what, so what, are you, what are we looking at here? See, in Genesis 11 and 12, you are looking at the end of the city of man and the dawning of the city of God in its Abrahamic iteration, in its Abrahamic promissory form. And when Abraham himself, now, now we're going to get down to some brass tacks, what was Abraham looking for? Now this is critical. I want you to think back with Abraham. What did the dispensationalists tell us Abraham was looking for? They tell us Abraham was looking for an earthly inheritance. They tell us that Abraham was longing to enter in to that earthly inheritance where he would be at home. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? That Abraham himself, in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 15, what was Abraham himself thinking about himself with regard to this earthly land? He was thinking of himself as a pilgrim and stranger and alien while on earth. Why? Because on earth, please hear this, on earth he found no home. He was looking at what the dispensationalists say is his home. And what does the author of Hebrews tell us? He was thinking while he was looking. Here, here, keep your eyes down on this earth. Here, I have no home. Here, 
I'm a stranger and an alien. So where were his eyes directed? Well, here's what I want you to see. His, his eyes, listen, then and there, then and there, his eyes, look, were looking at Canaan and through Canaan to heaven. Abraham himself viewed the land of Canaan as a typical window through which he could view heaven. It's almost as though he's looking through the earth and because that earthly inheritance land is a type of heaven, he could look at it and then through it to a heavenly paradise land. He could look through it to a heavenly city a heavenly land, a heavenly country that Hebrews 13, 14 tells us is not here. It's not on earth. And let me be a little more pointed. It's not in Canaan. Now let me, let me tell you why this is important. I'll give you an illustration. Remember how I told you I watch the church channel sometimes? Now I'm not, listen, I'm not encouraging anyone to watch the church channel. I watch it just so I can remember and know what, what people are saying that, that we don't agree with. And only do it late at night if, I'm, if I'm, I'm not sleeping or something, just to keep up with it. You know what I saw in it? I won't tell you the names because I'm not trying to tarnish anyone's reputation, but there was a tour. You can pay, a, I think, $1,000, and you can go to the Holy Land to see the inheritance of Israel. And they tell you that when you get off the bus after you've landed and you're going on the tour, they're telling you you're going to walk in the inheritance land that God has promised to his people Israel. And and they 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 make a huge point that all of the purposes of God right now are concentrated where? On the Jews in the land of Canaan, so come and look and come and pray and ask God to work mightily to bring his people home. And do you know what it makes me want to do? I'm not prone to do this. I guess I am. You saw yesterday. It makes me want to cry. It makes me want to cry. Why? Look, the author of Hebrews is telling you this, that intrinsic to the land of Canaan, built into it by God, A, and secondly, understood clearly by Abraham himself. That land was a type of a future heavenly homeland where God would bring whom? Got to get this. Abraham. Isaac. Jacob, and all of the offspring of the Shemites. So how does this bring into view? We don't go till 11? Okay, so, so, thank you. Hey, so there was a great ending that was coming, and we're almost to it. So, um... <laughs> I'm so sorry, brother. I've just pedagogically blew this one. Um, so, okay, so uh, the five-minute way to put it, think of it this way. 
Who is the offspring of Abram? We were going to do this, and now I'm going to have to do it quickly. The two texts to jot down are Genesis 9, 24 through 27. So I was just about to ask you, who's the offspring of Abram? Genesis 9, 24 through 27, and Genesis uh, 12, 1 through 3. Here, here it is. I've got I to be quick. Um, in, in Genesis 9, Noah's prophecy is basically this. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God dwells in the tents of the Shemites. The Shemites are the ancestors of Abraham, right? And Noah's prophecy is this, that the tents of Shem will extend to and include the Japhethites. Who are the Japhethites? Back in Genesis 10? Yeah. In Genesis 10, one, I don't have time. Genesis 10, one through five, the Shemites are the coastland people who are scattered throughout the whole world. And do you know who, who they come to be called later in redemptive history? The Gentiles. In the plan of God, plan A, no, he's gone. In the, in the plan of God, plan A is that the tents of Shem, of whom Abraham is the prototype, historically, are by design to extend to whom? The Japhethite Gentiles. When does that happen climactically? It happens at Pentecost. And this is where I've got two minutes, and I've just got to tell you this. At Pentecost, what happens? I'm so sorry I blew this. But at Pentecost, what happens? When Jesus Christ ascends and pours out the Spirit, what does he do? <laughs> Tons of fire descend. And Jesus does what? He descends, he blesses, and he gathers his church by the Spirit to himself. And that church consists of what? Jews, Shemites, Japhethites, Gentiles, so that they are now dwelling in the tents of Shem, in Christ raised. And when he rises, guess where he goes? He goes to that heavenly homeland at the right hand of God in heaven, and Pentecost is the antithesis of Babel. God descended, God judged, God scattered, God confused. In Christ, God descends, God gathers, God blesses, and he brings his people home. And so, the capstone statement is this. All these, Hebrews 11:39, Abraham, Moses, David, and all of God's people from the Old Covenant, all these did not receive what was promised. They did not yet enter into the heavenly homeland because it had not been opened by Jesus. Since God had providing something better for us, listen, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. There is one covenantal household of God. 
Moses was a servant in it. Abraham was promised it. Christ is a son over it. And we are that house. One covenantal household of God where the tents of Shem extend to the Japhethites and where is our home? Our home is in heaven. Let's pray. Sorry for running late. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel and ask that you would build us up in Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Teach us to walk according to the truth of your word and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I knew it ended at 15.